From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A difficult year was made even more so with a spike in violence in Denver. 2020 was a record year, the highest number of homicides that we've seen in our city since 1981. We are seeing this trend continue in 2021. Coming up, a conversation with Denver's police chief. Then, there's supposed to be a safe haven for vulnerable children, but residential treatment centers often fall short. We see children being sold into sex trafficking. We see children that have been harmed in accidents. We see kids who have been killed. And Coloradans with family in virus-ravaged India brace and organize and hope. He says, hopefully the infection has reached its peak and is now going to come down. And he says, no news so far is good news. Colorado Public Radio is able to bring you what you need in a news and music service because of generous financial support from members. A special thank you to everyone who gave during the recent membership drive. Together, you strengthened the financial backbone of CPR and through your support, helped plant trees around the state. Thank you for your gift and thank you for making an extra impact in Colorado. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A quarter of homicides in Denver in 2020 occurred in tiny slivers of the city. Same for aggravated assaults. This is according to the DPD, which counts five areas of concentrated violence. So the department will deploy, quoting here, precision policing focused on those who cause the most harm. Meanwhile, outside reformers are calling for an overhaul of public safety in Denver. We heard from some of those activists earlier this week. And now, Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin. Chief, thanks for being with us. Ryan, thanks for having us. Uh, We also want to recognize the recent anniversary of the George Floyd killing and our commitment to ensure that that does not happen in our community. Uh, Tuesday was the year anniversary of his murder in Minneapolis which we'll reflect on in just a bit. Here is how your department is framing the recent violent crime, that less than 2% of Denver's landmass generates a substantial number of shootings and aggravated assaults. What do you believe is going on in these neighborhoods, which include Colfax and Broadway, South Federal Boulevard, and a stretch of MLK? Well, drilling down into the data, it's uh, 1.5%. percent of the landmass, excluding DIA. So this is uh, truly the city proper uh, that we are seeing. And unfortunately, uh, we're talking about gun violence. These are are shootings. The majority of these victims of homicides were a result of of gun violence. And uh, we are working with our other city agencies, a whole of government and a whole of community approach to address this. 2020 was a record year, the highest number of homicides that we've seen in our city since 1981. We are seeing this trend continue in 2021, and it is vital that we work together in order to stop this disturbing trend. And what do you attribute the trend to? Is it the frustration, perhaps the desperation around the pandemic? 
Well, there are a lot of causal factors uh, when you look at each one of the uh, individual crimes that occurred. Talking specifically about the homicide, uh, several of these started as an argument and then resulted in somebody utilizing a a weapon and taking somebody's life. Uh, We also have situations in here where the offender uh, was somebody that we need to do a better job as a community providing support and accountability. Uh, At least 25 of these situations, the individual was on some form of pretrial probation or parole. Hmm. Is gang violence connected to this in any significant way? So gang violence is only up slightly and nowhere in the ballpark of the uh, 23 and 62% increase we see this year, nor the 47 and 63% increase we saw last year. So gang violence is only up uh, a small number. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, a fair number of these folks were on probation and parole. Are, Are you saying that they perhaps should not be outside of prison yet? Uh, Absolutely not. I'm saying that we need to make sure that uh, we are utilizing the right support systems in order to help folks. We have to uh, work collectively in order to ensure people have the right amount of support and accountability so we don't have repeat uh, incidences of violence. We want to change that behavior so people are not losing their lives in the city of Denver. And yet that seems to fall outside of your purview, doesn't it? I mean, that's really a different system. Exactly what we are talking about here with our approach, that uh, we can't address this by ourselves. Uh, This is bigger than just the police department focusing in on five hotspots. This is uh, the police department working with human services, working with fire department, uh, nonprofits, faith-based groups, community-based organizations to address the the gun violence that's taking place, and then uh, working together in a collaborative way with prosecutors. prosecutors, with the courts, with detentions to make sure that folks have the appropriate support, whether that's a mental health, substance abuse issue, or something else. Now, when it comes to these five areas of the city where there is increased violence, uh, I understand that they're mostly uh, business areas as opposed to residential. What does precision policing look like? So, Each one of the five neighborhoods, they have their own uniqueness about them as well, just as all 78 of Denver's neighborhoods are uniquely different. Precision policing is focusing on the issues that are driving crime in those particular areas and then rooting out the individuals that are creating the most harm that are uh, engaging in this very high-level criminal behavior of uh, shootings and homicides. And by rooting out the individuals that are creating the most harm, then it's utilizing other city services like human services, the fire department, as well as uh, faith-based communities and nonprofits to fill that void, to help uplift a community so that that criminal element doesn't come back to the same areas. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. My guest is police chief in Denver, Paul Pazin. This week indeed marks a year since the murder of George Floyd. A two-part question. How did his death change you and how did it change the DPD? Ryan, uh, great question. 
One of the profound impacts that George Floyd's uh, death had on me was uh, when I marched with community members, uh, you know, when when uh, folks were demanding justice and change and uh, listening to a young person and hearing the hurt, uh, the fear, the passion in her experience and in, in her voice is something that I will remember till the end of my time. As somebody that uh, has grown up in this city, a, a Latino uh, who grew up to a single mom in, in North Denver, I feel I had some perspective, but hearing it from a young person, a teenager who should have been more focused on prom and graduation and school, but had this very heavy feeling as a result of the killing of George Floyd, really, you know, shed light and uh, had an impact on me personally that I won't forget. Um, And then as far as changes in the police department, I think that it is critical that we look at the death of George Floyd and uh, look inward. How can we ensure that that never happens in our community? A little over a year ago, before George Floyd was killed, we had a strong use of force policy that included duty to intervene and a duty to roll somebody over on their side. And it's our policy that we don't arrest for a uh, fraudulent $20 bill. So I felt pretty confident that that would not have happened here. However, since then, we have uh, strengthened that policy on duty to intervene. We've clarified and strengthened our policy that prohibits uh, chokeholds and carotid techniques. We've uh, added documentation of of pointing the firearm. We launched the STAR program, support team assisted response for low-level mental health calls for service to help people. We've uh, enhanced our co-responder program. The idea there is that it's not that an officer, an armed officer, has to show up at certain kinds of crises. You're exactly right. Uh, We want better outcomes for people in crisis. And in some circumstances, it's much better if a mental health professional and a medic respond to the call and there's not that possibility of of escalation. And then there are other situations where the individual who's in crisis is armed with a weapon or has demonstrated violent behavior. And that's where a co-responder is more appropriate to help de-escalate the situation. But one area that we've expanded on or created was this case manager or outreach case coordinators. So what happens after that initial crisis call, right? It's great that we have STAR to help us or co-responders to help us, but what about tomorrow? What about next week? What about next month? What would be better is if we can help keep somebody from sliding into crisis in the first place. And all of these have either been created or expanded uh, post the killing of George Floyd. I do want to talk about body-worn cameras. So in a press release this week, Denver officials say the city has led the way when it comes to deploying these And yet, the Independent Monitor found during last summer's protests, which you talked about walking in, that those cameras were often off. Is that still happening? 
Well, thank you so much for bringing this up. And uh, we did identify the gap. The gap wasn't uh, the fact that officers were not uh, turning on the cameras. It was the fact that the cameras could not be attached to the protective gear that officers uh, needed to wear during these uh, mostly peaceful protests. But the few protests that 81 officers were injured in, that protective gear is about an inch thick. And those body-worn cameras are held together to the uniform with a magnet. So we have since rectified this situation by purchasing additional pieces of equipment that can allow for this attachment to the protective gear. Uh, You, Mayor Hancock, and the Director of Public Safety, Murphy Robinson, held a press conference Monday to roll out your adapted strategies for policing in light of what we've seen in the past year for violent crime. I just want to note that was the same day that a community task force was trying to draw attention to a major public safety reform plan that it had just released. And I suppose, Chief, this is a pretty cynical question, but was that an act of diversion, trying to divert attention away from the task force's plan? Absolutely not. Uh, The mayor made it clear weeks uh, ago, this three-pronged strategy to uh, help our city rebound and recover from the global pandemic and the economic crisis that uh, we've been dealing with for the last 14 months. Do do you Uh, care to comment at all on the 100 or more recommendations that came out of that task force's plan? Well, first and foremost, we respect uh, the work uh, of the committee, and uh, we're reviewing those recommendations to see what uh, a future implementation of uh, recommendations may look like. And so you're not prepared to comment fully on them at this point? Again, uh, fully respect the time and effort that went into the recommendations. We feel that it would be appropriate for us to give each one of these the time and attention that they deserve. Uh, Some of these recommendations we already have implemented, um, and we will look at uh, each of them and give them the time that they deserve. Let me ask you this. One of the major concerns they have is that there can be racist cops, either that the screening isn't good enough and that the monitoring once someone is hired isn't good enough if there's a a background of white supremacy. Um, Will you just address that issue? We, under no circumstances, will allow for or tolerate any forms of white supremacy or racism uh, within our department. And you feel that you have good screening to find those folks? We have uh, extensive uh, screening uh, in order to identify folks that are best suited uh, for this job. And just like everything that we do, we uh, seek improvement. And if there are areas that can help identify uh, these types of behaviors, then we certainly uh, would implement those in the future. But we are absolutely uh, committed to uh, a environment that is inclusive for uh, the service of our community and the people that work for this department. Chief, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin. (music) 
children with severe mental health issues may land in state-licensed residential treatment centers. Same for kids who get stuck in the foster care system. But rather than support young people, these facilities can put kids in further jeopardy. We see children being sold into sex trafficking. We see children that have been harmed in accidents. We see kids who have been killed. Many share in a sense of exasperation. Families who find it difficult to learn what goes on behind closed doors, child care advocates who are calling for reform, and the workers who care for these young people. And this all came to light in a joint investigation by the Colorado Sun and Nine News. And the Sun's Jennifer Brown is with us. Hi, Jen. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And from Nine News, Jeremy Hohola. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's start, Jennifer, by having you explain the role these residential treatment centers are supposed to play for young people. Sure. So these residential centers, there are 52 of them in Colorado. They're licensed by the State Department of Human Services. And these are places for children who, many of whom have been in the foster system. Some of them have lived in multiple foster homes. You know, we're talking a dozen or more sometimes. And those placements have failed. And so they wind up in these residential treatment centers. Other children are there who were never in the foster system. And these are children who have such severe mental health and behavioral health issues that they've gone to hospitals multiple times, perhaps, for psychiatric treatment, and and children and teens who are not safe living at home with their parents, um, oftentimes because they are suicidal and, you know, need 24-7 supervision. These are not young people who are in these homes because they're connected to the criminal justice system necessarily, correct? Correct. So this is not the division of youth services. This is, you know, part of the child welfare system. And that's an important point, Ryan, because these facilities are not locked. These are... um, and, and it's actually state law that they cannot be locked. You cannot lock the doors, lock children inside. And furthermore, you cannot physically block them from running away. And that's the real problem that Jeremy and I dug into is the runaway issue. We will circle back to that. Uh, Jeremy, the voice we heard in the introduction belongs to Child Protection Ombudsman Stephanie Villafuerte. She mentioned sex trafficking, injury, death. Uh, Indeed, sometimes because these young people run away from these facilities. That was the case for 12-year-old Timothy Montoya Klopfel. He lived at a number of facilities, including the Tennyson Center for Children in Denver. And here's his mother, Elizabeth. Timmy was such a beautiful child, and he loved people so much. But he struggled. He struggled with suicide. He struggled with wanting to hurt himself. And so many kids these days are going through that same thing. So, Jeremy, what happened to Timmy? So Timmy, uh, he had a history of running away. He was, uh, before he was at the Tennyson Center, he was living at the Mount St. Vincent home, uh, which is in the same, kind of in the same area of Denver. In June of 2020, last year, uh, he ran away again. This was his second, uh, at least his second time running away from the Tennyson Center. He ran away and he made his way to the Eye of Frontage Road in Wheat Ridge. And, And the night... Uh, a driver was driving down the frontage road and uh, hit Timmy. The driver believes uh, that Timmy was uh, lying in the middle of the road. And his mother has indicated to us in our interview with her that he had a history of doing that as a way to perhaps 
um, you know, cry for help. Uh, and uh, the driver hit him and uh, Timmy uh, eventually uh, passed away at the hospital with his mother at the side. It was a terrible tragedy. Uh, and it was one of those cases where, you know, he had a history of running away. He ran away from the Tennyson Center and he died. It's interesting to hear you, Jeremy, use the term runaway, because as Jen just laid out for us, the idea here is that young people are free to come and go as they please, right? I think from the perspective of parents, though, parents expect these facilities to keep uh, strong supervision over their children. Uh, There's a case, uh, a pending lawsuit against a facility in Westminster involving the family of a boy named Andrew Potter, who we also profiled. He was 15 years old and um, he he left the facility uh, in, in Westminster. And so parents expect that these facilities should have good supervision over their children because they're essentially entrusting these facilities to keep watch and to make sure kids don't leave, to make sure kids don't run away. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair for us to use the term runaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, these kids are leaving, uh, and they're, they're, they're running away from, 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 from these facilities because, you know, for, for many different reasons, either they don't feel safe there or they have a mental health issue or a combination of both where they just, just need to get out of there. I mean, this leaves employees of these residential treatment centers with little recourse but to call law enforcement when children escape. And and these facilities make a lot of 911 calls. Tennyson called the Denver Police Department 357 times in 2020. Another home in Denver, Mount St. Vincent, called the DPD on average twice a week. That sort of frequency leaves everyone frustrated. This is body camera audio from Officer Eric Lee in January 2020. You guys grab these kids and take them back. That's your job. Quit calling us. We're not telling you you have to. We're saying I know you're not because you can't tell me that I have to. to Yes, you are. We are not. Okay, then we're leaving. If you're telling me you are ill-equipped to care for these children, then you need to be shut down by the state. You're just going to watch them. That's your. That's your plan. You're going to watch them. That's what you're telling me. Take these kids back there and do your job. Jennifer Brown of the Colorado Sun, talk about being between a rock and a hard place here. I mean, where does a solution lie? Does the legislature get involved? Well, we heard time and again from employees, former employees that we interviewed who worked at these places about just how, like you said, they're kind of stuck And we're talking about going to a job where you get paid maybe $16 an hour and you're getting punched in the face, chairs thrown at you, spit on um, by these children with very high needs. And meanwhile, you're trying to prevent them from running away, except the laws forbid you from blocking them or, um, you know, locking them in a room. So what they do at these places, if they can, is um, run along. You know, they'll follow kids down the street. And then eventually, you know, they're maybe two miles away and they've been following kids or the kids are lost 
and they call police, like you said. Um, you know, one center, Cleo Wallace, uh, Devereaux Center in Westminster, called 700 times in one year to the officers. So you can hear these uh, these police departments are very frustrated by this continual response to basically round up children and bring them back. Let's continue the discussion about these residential treatment centers for young people in Colorado, state-licensed facilities after a break. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's really important to me to share stories of people who aren't traditionally represented in media. Haley Sanchez is on the CPR News public affairs team. I feel like some communities get forgotten really easily. And so my goal is to delve into communities whose stories are not being told in certain situations. Listen for the work of the Colorado Public Radio Newsroom every day here on CPR News. State-licensed residential care facilities meant to care for vulnerable young people may put them in greater jeopardy. It's according to an investigation by Nine News and the Colorado Sun. Reporters Jeremy Hohola and Jennifer Brown are with us. And Jeremy, I want to get back to a question that we didn't get to address in the first part of the conversation, which is... uh, with so many players here, we've got the homes, we've got the child care advocates, the state, the children. Uh, who's in charge of of fixing this? Where does the responsibility lie? Has the legislature gotten involved, Jeremy? Well, the, we, we, we've heard from some lawmakers who've expressed an interest in what we found, but they're so busy on the Capitol these days, as you, you're aware but the, the, the main state agency that oversees these facilities is the Colorado Department of Human Services. And we interviewed them. And uh, when we interviewed them, they uh, talked about the rules, uh, saying that the rules are the way they are is because these are not locked facilities, as Jen Brown talked about. These are not facilities where uh, kids go because they're facing some sort of criminal you know, conviction sentence, what have you. Uh, but as far as what the solution is and who's responsible for fixing this, this would likely come probably from the Colorado Department of Human Services, find a way to change the rules, or maybe even a legislative fix. Uh, what that is, we don't know. Um, we, we interviewed the Child Protection Ombudsman, uh, Stephanie Villafuerte, and she even said uh, she doesn't know what the fix is. But she did say, you know, there's lots of smart people that work in child welfare in Colorado and that there needs to be a solution to this problem because it's gone on for so long and children are running away and they're getting hurt. And in some cases, as we profile, they're dying. Jen, is this as simple in some cases as a lock? Again, maybe a lock during certain hours or something like that? Or is that just an undermining of the purpose of these centers? I think that's a, a debate that's been going on, right? You know, While the state speaks to children have rights, these are homes, these are not jails, you have others and, you know, some who run these residential centers who say, well, children also have the right to be kept safe. So it'll be interesting how that discussion plays out. Hmm. And I think what is important to note that's going on here in the whole 
overview of child welfare is that there has been a huge push over the last couple of years to get children out of these residential centers and put them in foster families, um, to spend more money on preventing child abuse instead of money on keeping kids in these 24-7 facilities. And, of course, that concept is great, right? But the argument is that um, as Colorado has sort of stripped away funding from these centers, they've, you know, perhaps damaged them to the point where, you know, they can't pay staff enough. They can't keep staff working there. The turnover is so high, and that leads to kids being not as safe. So, uh, you know, one of the important points made by someone we interviewed over at the um, Joint Budget Committee was that, yes, you can try to shift the child welfare system to focus on prevention, but you also have to keep it stable. Like, don't Mm -hmm. destabilize to the point that these residential centers are falling apart. You found that families are often unable to get information about what's happening with their children inside these facilities. Um, You encountered some stonewalling as well. Jeremy, talk about the lack of transparency a bit. So these facilities, um, you know, they they operate, you know, a lot of them are nonprofits, but they're they're, they're still state licensed. And so that means that there are some documents that we should be able to see in the public interest. Uh, but there's still not enough transparency. I can get more information about a local pizza joint on Yelp than I can about these facilities. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, we are currently in conjunction with the Colorado Sun suing the Colorado Department of Human Services because they refuse to turn over numbers the number of calls that these facilities have made to a child abuse and neglect hotline. And we just want the number. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why they're, you know, they're trying to keep this number secret, these numbers secret. And so that's just one facet of the lack of transparency within, within these facilities. They need to be more transparent. That way parents and guardians can understand what is the history at these facilities? Uh, what's, what's the quality of care like at these facilities? Uh, we have it for daycares here in Colorado. Mm. And these are children that need help. You know, parents should know. Jen made reference earlier to workers at these facilities who experience trauma of their own. On a daily, I would at least get punched in the face five to ten times. And that's like even attempting to block. They still find a way in. There was a constant state of just like preparing because you knew something was going to go wrong. Everything goes wrong. It was just constantly being aware of what could be used as a weapon towards me, what could be used as a weapon towards themselves, because they would self-harm too. It wasn't just abuse on the employees. It wasn't just abuse on like other kids. It was abuse on themselves also. It was everything. And despite all that, a bond forms. You get those like little moments where you feel like you're making a difference. And like you have your relationships with these kids, no matter how much like they're attacking you. At the end of the day, they're sitting there apologizing and crying over it, saying how sorry they are and how much they care for you. And they're like, I don't want you to leave. That was the thing that the kids said a lot is, are you going to leave me? And so that thought in the back of my head, I'm like, this sucks, but I don't want to be another person abandoning them. Are you going to leave me? Talk about a punch to the gut. Jennifer, you report that staff turnover is really high in these facilities. Who's looking out for the workers? Well, <clears throat> one thing I want to say, Ryan, is that just punched me in the gut about those stories, is those interviews with staff, is that we, 
more than once independently heard them describe working there as being in a toxic relationship. I thought it was really powerful because it was like they they knew they were being abused and maybe, you know, struggling every day to go to work, but yet couldn't walk away from those kids. And so I think when we talk about, you know, when they're talking about getting punched in the face and what's happening to these staff, they're talking about it in a way that they're not blaming the kids. It's that, you know, they care. They want to help them. They're just not supported enough. So, you know, the the people that run these residential centers, you know, we talk to some of them too. And of course, they want to support staff more and pay them more, provide more training, um, encourage them to stay longer. Um, yet they do talk about how every year is a struggle and they spend more money um, on the care of a child who's there in a bed for 24-7 than they are reimbursed by the state of Colorado to take care of that child. So they spend a lot of their time fundraising to make up the difference in that. Mm -hmm. So there's some real work to be done in how these places are supported and the laws around them. Jeremy Hohola mentioning that they're mostly nonprofit. And, you know, Jeremy, before we go, it occurs to me these young people, they have a life ahead of them. They will be someday released from these homes. And it is in society's best interest to make sure that they have productive lives where they are not driven to violence or to crime or to, you know, homelessness. I mean, this really has a decades-long tale, doesn't it? Absolutely. These are children that are coming from extremely difficult backgrounds that we can't fathom. Uh, They're coming from backgrounds uh, that, you know, that involve, you know, abuse and neglect. And we need, as a society, to take care of them. We need to help them because they need an extreme amount of acute care. And when these children age out of the system, as Jennifer Brown has done reporting on, a lot of them... Uh, you know, end up, uh, you know, experiencing homelessness. Uh, a lot of them go back out to society without the skill sets uh, that they need or the right kind of uh, tools to have to, to manage themselves out in society. So I, I think, you know, one, one interview that we did in our investigation was mm. a, a woman named Lizzie, uh, who's 23 years old now, but she talks about living in these facilities. And she told us that she felt more safe in an abusive household than inside these facilities. Um, I mean, of course, that's just one perspective, but that's, I mean, to hear that, that's a problem. Jeremy Hohola of Nine News collaborated with Jennifer Brown of the Colorado Sun on an investigation into Colorado's residential treatment centers for children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Coloradans of Indian descent are experiencing a kind of pandemic whiplash. While things open up here, India's become a viral hotspot. Reporter Vignesh Ramachandran joins us. Hi, Vignesh. Good morning, Ryan. There are about 30,000 Indian Americans living in Colorado, and you've been talking with some of them who have close family ties to India. What are they doing to reduce their sense of helplessness? 
It's a real uh, tricky situation right now. As things are opening up here, we're getting uh, messages and phone calls uh, from family members, relatives, family friends in India who are who are dealing um, with this contagious variant, who are dealing with cases rising, and you know trying to to give some moral support from afar. Moral support. What does that look like to give that from afar? I mean, it's it's looking like uh, messaging on a daily basis. It's looking like organizing uh, fundraising campaigns uh, for oxygen tanks and uh, to coordinate hospital treatments um, from afar. And it's it's uh, really troubling right now. The crisis in India affects you personally, which we'll talk about in a moment. But first, let's listen to your report on a recent vaccination effort in Colorado. It's a Saturday morning in May at the Hindu temple south of Denver. Volunteers in yellow shirts are lined up as people walk in to get their first or maybe second shot. Organizer Vijaya Lakshmi Betadapura is overseeing the process. I'm doing just my bit here. She's from the faith-based group Seva International, which has been working with Governor Polis's office to get people here vaccinated. You know, whatever is whatever I can do in my capacity to help the people, not just, I, I'm not just saying Indian community, as you can see, there's other folks too, whoever can, to get them, to get themselves vaccinated. By the end of these two days, about 120 people will have gotten a shot, including Geetanjali Garud and her husband Vikas from Centennial. This was super easy. We just came here and uh, I like the energy here. The people are very helpful. Going back to our normal life is most important. Uh, So, yeah, definitely I feel very good. It may feel almost normal here, but for family members in India, everything is dim and grim right now. About 27 million have been infected, and more than 303,000 people are dead. And experts say it's likely being undercounted. This year, this time around that's hit India, it is really bad. Betta Dapura, the organizer of this clinic, lives in Highlands Ranch and has family in Bengaluru, India. It is hitting close to home because I have relatives falling sick. I've had friends' relatives. We hear about deaths every day, right? Somebody or the other dying. We hear about people getting admitted to hospitals, getting COVID positive every other day. WhatsApp is the main means of communication for families in the U.S. and India. People here check it early in the morning and late at night looking for updates. These messages used to be filled with funny memes and family photos. Now they're somber details about how this or that relative is doing. It's a steady beat. Some optimistic that things will get better. Some bear sad news. I just had a recent death in my family just day before yesterday. It was my cousin's husband. So that was a very shocking news for the family. But Indians here in the U.S. haven't escaped the pandemic at home either. South Asian Americans in particular have comorbidities like diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease. In the early days of the pandemic in New York City, for example, South Asians there had the second highest rate of test positivity behind Hispanic people. But for the 30,000 or so people of Indian descent living in Colorado, at least they have the vaccine now to significantly slow things down. That contrast is on the mind of Sanjana Shinoy, another organizer of this clinic. 
being an Indian American is really interesting at this point, just because in America we're having a surplus of vaccines, young people are choosing to not get the vaccine, right? And then in India we're having such a big problem where people are dying to get vaccines. So it's kind of tough being in this position, you know, living here but being an Indian at heart, knowing that, you know, people back home are suffering. Which is why many Indian Americans have stepped up from afar. They've organized fundraising campaigns on WhatsApp, helped coordinate hospital treatments, and tried to rally oxygen tanks. And in some instances, it's working, like it did for Ranga Vinjamuri, who's also a leader at this vaccine clinic in Colorado. His aunt was recently critically ill with COVID. Uh, we have been trying for almost 24 hours, and she did get the bed, and she's uh, actually uh, in a much better position after receiving the treatment and such. Um, so we are hoping for a for full recovery. These experiences make it clear how global this disease is. Betta Pura says the large-scale recovery from it is going to take efforts from around the world. People back home are also working really hard to fight the virus. But the only way we can do it is we have to come together, you know, forget which nation, what people. We are just one race, that's human race. And we have to come together as a human race to fight this pandemic. A fight that wages on from hospital beds to WhatsApp threads. For CPR News, I'm Vignesh Ramachandran. Vignesh is back with us now. We are also joined by Dr. Camilla Sasson. She's an emergency physician in Colorado who's been on the front lines of the pandemic all across the U.S. from the start. Hi, Dr. Sasson. Hi, thanks for having me. So you both have family in India. Dr. Sasson, you tweeted last Thursday, just lost my aunt, my mom's sister, to COVID-19 in India. For anyone who wants to say things are better and back to normal in India, please reach out and I can tell you what's really happening. Ask your friends with family in India. So many of us have suffered these losses. That was your tweet. I'm really sorry, first off. And secondly, what are you hearing from your family now? Just like Vignesh had mentioned, I think it's really just a, it's a sad situation because I think there's so much that can be done and there's, That's really the biggest thing right now is that they're just watching people die literally on the streets. There's crematoriums happening in public parks because the crematoriums have run out of space. And the number of people that are actually getting COVID-19 and dying from it are way, way underreported. So at least the, the estimates I've gotten from my family is that it's probably five to 10 times more than what we're actually hearing about here in in the U.S. What really struck me in your story there, Ignesh, is this idea that there is a surplus of vaccine here and a real desire for it in India. And I I had this picture of like trying to get a vial and jump on a plane and just go inoculate my family members. Like, I, I just wonder how you deal with that sense of it's so close yet so far. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's 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 a really difficult feeling because, you know, we're we're slowly transitioning back to our normal lives here in Colorado. Um, but I think one way that we've been lending support is, you know, giving any information that we hear from the CDC here about how um, the efficacy of vaccines um, to our relatives in India and, you know, how they can take precautions there to stay safe. Um, so just sharing as much information as possible. Is there hesitancy in India as there is in the United States? What are you hearing? 
I think in my family, there was some misinformation that was potentially shared on um, in WhatsApp conversations, on social media. And so there was initially some hesitancy as, at first, but I think as more and more people got the vaccine, um, uh, more trust um, was, was kind of built up. Dr. Sassen, I, I think you said just a bit earlier that there's more that could be done that isn't necessarily getting done. What, what are the gaps? Well, you know, I think we're in the middle of a public health disaster in India. And on top of it, we have a a sustained mass casualty event, right? So we have literally weeks and weeks of people just dying on the streets. And so, you know, I think when when I think about what we've done in similar situations here in the U.S. when we've had our big surges, you know, I was in New York, Texas, California, Montana, Oklahoma, North Dakota, South Dakota, working on the front lines of when we had COVID surges in those states. And it was a completely different response. And just like Vic Nation mentioned, it's getting the word out to people about what to do to prevent getting COVID-19. And then when do you actually go to seek help? I think that's been the biggest issue is that people are just afraid. They don't know when they're supposed to go. There's Everything is overwhelmed, so there's no resources for them. And so I know for my family, at least, uh, they were at least... um, Uh, affiliated with the military. So they had a spot that they could go to in the hospital. But many people right now are, you know, there's pop-up COVID care centers happening all over the the country. Um, I'm working with an NGO that literally has created two COVID care centers, and they used to be a literacy foundation two months ago. Oh, my goodness. They've converted to that new mission. I mean, virtually overnight. Well, and that's where, you know, I think, what can we do here in the U.S.? I've, you know, I'm, I'm volunteering to help just through telemedicine uh, to help doctors and patients out there. Obviously, just getting the information out to our family members is really, really important. Um, I work for the Heart Association. We actually have been using our voice in India to be able to get really important critical information about how to stay safe. What is the real thing about vaccines? You know, how do you actually treat somebody who's got COVID-19. Those are all things that we can do, but it's all a part of a public health education campaign. It does sound like people are perhaps delaying care and that that is worsening their conditions. Do I hear you saying that? Well, and that's what we saw here, especially in the in the beginnings of the pandemic, right? Every Everything that we had said was, hey, look, don't let our healthcare systems get overwhelmed. Don't come to the hospital right away. When I was working on the Indian reservations in in North Dakota, South Dakota, that was one of the things that we found is that people just didn't know when am I too short of breath that I need to go get care. And Uh so they would wait at home. And when they wait at home, that's when they get so sick that by the time you see me in the ED, there's not much I can do. Vignesh, you have also lost family members in India to COVID-19. Your aunt has been sending updates through WhatsApp about your relatives. I spoke to Rahul this morning. He's very positive. He says his mother's being discharged today and he's going to bring her home. He set up isolation in the house and he's very hopeful his father's going to turn around because he says the situation has improved. His breathing is, you know, uh, improved. His dependence on the uh, oxygen is also improved. So keeping our fingers crossed, praying hard, uh, you know, it's very... Well, you know, when when he's so positive, all I could say was, this is fantastic. I'm so happy to hear this. So let's again just continue to pray hard and, you know, hope he comes out of this. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to tell you that. Bye-bye. So, Vignesh, in broad strokes, what what are you hearing from your family right now? We're getting... uh you know, constant ups, updates like this, you know, every day from family members in India who are, you know, this was a family member, for example, um, a couple who was hospitalized, um, an aunt and uncle. And 
Um, one of them was on a ventilator uh, for a few days. And this is this is just days after his brother had literally passed away from uh, COVID and they couldn't hold a funeral. And, you know, they were in the grieving process and, you know, then they get infected. And we're just constantly hearing stories like that in multi-generational households and, and communities um, where it's spreading. It's also sometimes COVID such a roller coaster, like you can be doing well one minute and the next minute you can be, you know, in really severe condition. And so I wonder if it feels a bit like a roller coaster with individual family members, Dr. Sasson. You know, it, it absolutely does. I think we're we're coaching them from afar, right? So just like we did uh, when I was, again, on the reservations and, you know, in, in different communities here. Okay, if you walk, do the 40-step walk test and you can't sing your ABCs, that's a good time to go seek care. And that's something I can do with them over the phone. Um, and it's a way to quantify shortness of breath. Um, I think we know that it's, you know, COVID is droplet, but it's also airborne spread as well. So the isolation piece that your aunt had mentioned on the phone is actually really, really important. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons that we saw such huge spread in New York, in the Indian reservations, in Texas, in immigrant communities, multi-generational families living in small, closed spaces with poor ventilation. Well, I'm glad you mentioned ventilation because I'd like to draw on your expertise just in these last few minutes about where you see the next chapter of COVID being for the United States. I mean, we know now, uh, despite the fact that we spent so many times using antibacterial wipes on surfaces, that uh, aerosol transmission is really critical here. What, what do you see as the next stage for COVID on U.S. soil? Well, you know, I think we've gotten to the point now where masks are optional. You know, I was at the store. I was at the Home Depot this week, uh, Hobby Lobby. About half of the people were wearing masks. Um, there's no question. You don't ask anyone their vaccination status, right? That's an awkward, I don't want to know, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. Although people are wearing pins to some right. extent. The question <laughs> so, is, can they be trusted? You know, eh, you know and, and, and I hate to say that. As a, as a doctor, I have to say, you know, I think the thing that we can do the most is really make sure that our indoor spaces are ventilated appropriately. And that's where, you know, we've been working on carbon dioxide monitoring as a way to look at, hey, it's not carbon monoxide. I get that a lot, right? So it's not from fires and things like that. It's actually, as we breathe, we exhale carbon dioxide, those levels go up. And at certain levels, the CDC has said, look, if you're in a closed space and those levels are high, then you need to consider airborne spread. And that this is something to consider even if you are vaccinated yourself, because we are amongst people who may not be. We are amongst people who may be too young to be vaccinated or have some pre-existing conditions, I suppose. Well, I have a four and a six-year-old, you know, so I know that they're not going to get vaccinated probably until the fall. And so that's why when I go to a restaurant, I want to make sure that they're safe. When I get on the plane, they have to be safe. Super important. (laughs) Dr. Camilla Sasson is an emergency physician in Colorado and Vignesh Ramachadran, who's been reporting on Coloradans with close ties to India, where COVID-19 is raging. Thanks to you both. And thanks as well to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to David Sachs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.